presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is our sixth of uh, nine sessions on what it means to be saved by grace. And today is sort of a, uh, an extension of what we were talking about last week. Last week we began to talk about justification. And uh, today I want to approach justification from a slightly different, uh, slightly different way. Uh, <clears throat> we've said, just by way of review, that... Uh, Paul, in Romans chapter 8, talks about an unbreakable chain of five links. Uh, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son uh, in order that he might have the preeminence among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, these he also called. Those he called, these he also justified. Those he justified, these he also glorified. And of course, Paul uses the past tense. And it's fascinating when you think about that because in God's mind, just as surely as he has begun his good work over here in eternity, it's sure to come to pass. And that's one of the reasons that the past tense is used. As far as God's concerned, it's already done, even though you and I are living in terms of time and space right here. We've said that Foreknowledge simply refers to persons. God has been has determined to be intimate with certain persons before the foundation of the world. Those persons he has predestined, he has a purpose for their lives, and their purpose is to be conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's sort of an intermediate purpose because the ultimate purpose is in conforming them to the Lord Jesus that the Lord Jesus Christ is becomes the preeminent one. That is, he is the one who is above and beyond all things. Now, how does God accomplish what he has determined from eternity? Well, we said that God uh, calls us to himself. The, he, we talked about the call of the gospel. That G there stands for the general call of the gospel. You and I, are, as believers in Christ, our marching orders are to do what? To go into all the world and preach the gospel, to make disciples. We are to gospelize. We are to share the good news. We are to teach, to preach, to convey any way we can the truth about the life and death and subsequent resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, the problem is in conveying that message to other people, uh, there's a major problem. And what's that problem? Yeah, we're sinful. And the Bible says that we are dead in trespasses and sin. So how is it that God overcomes the deadness of our souls? We know that dead people, we've all been to the mortuary enough times that we know that when we look in the casket and see someone lying in the casket, we can go over, we can weep over them, we can talk about the fact that, oh, I wish there were things that I wish that I had said, there were things that I said that I wish that I could take back. But does any of that evoke any kind of response from the person who is lying there in the mortuary? And the answer clearly is no. 
And what's true in the physical realm is true even to a greater extent in the spiritual realm, and that is the Bible describes the unbeliever, the person who doesn't know Christ, not as sick, sin sick, where they just need to take some medicine or they need to grab the life preserver, but as dead. They can't grab the life preserver. They don't know anything about a life preserver. They can't take the medicine. They don't trust the doctor in the first, in the first place. So what God does is in order to accomplish his purposes of bringing his own whom he has elected to himself, and the word elect means what? To choose. That's right. When we elect someone, we choose them. We call it casting a vote. And I think the reason we call it casting a vote is because after we've cast it, sometimes we wish we could take it back. But that's neither here nor there and has nothing to do with what we're talking about. So because of the deadness of people's souls, God, by means of his Holy Spirit, uh, uses the gospel of the general call as a means. We've got to communicate truth. But the Holy Spirit is the one who makes that alive in our experience. And the E here stands for the effectual call. God causes something to happen in the deadness of our souls. And what is that? He regenerates us. He brings us to life. A dead person has a primary need, and that need is what? It's life. They need to be brought to life. The Holy Spirit regenerates. He brings to life, and in bringing to life, he gives us the gifts of faith and repentance. In fact, one of the things that we've been talking about, the, the verse that is our uh, text, I suppose, for this whole series is Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 8 through 10. But verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through what? Through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It's what? It's the gift of God. The faith that God the faith that we express toward God said, yes, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. The faith that we express toward God is God's gift to us that he grants us at the time we are regenerated. We found the same thing true of repentance in, in um, I believe it's uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 where Paul talks about the fact that uh, as an elder in the church, one of their, he talks about the responsibilities that they have to take care of the flock. And then he talks about the people who are given such a hard time to the church. And he says that the elder needs to do certain particular things. And then the last phrase is that, and perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Both faith and repentance are gifts of God. Those are gifts that we express toward God. Faith in Christ and repentance toward God. Remember the word repent means to change our minds and when we change our minds genuinely, what happens to our actions? They change as well. That's right. Does that mean we live sinlessly perfect from now on? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Uh, if it does, I'm in trouble and I suspect the rest of you are in trouble too. God grants us this gift. We express faith in God, faith particularly in Christ, and through the expression of that faith in Christ, the Bible says that we are justified. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ is the way 
Paul expressed it in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. That's the next big link in the chain. And we said the word justify, and uh, let's see, I think I've uh, put this in your notes, yeah. The word justify means to acquit. It means to declare righteous. God declares us to be righteous. And I'll remind you of, of uh, Paul's commentary on that in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, where he talks about the experience of Abraham. And he says, what, shall we, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, that is, if God declared him to be righteous and acquitted him of his sins on the basis of the things that Abraham did, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God. That's, uh, that's the verb form. Faith is the noun form of the word. Abraham believed God. And what did God do? And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The word justify is a legal term. It means, again, it's a legal term. It means to acquit, to, uh, to declare righteous. The word reckon, as we saw last week, is an accounting term. It doesn't mean, well, I, I reckon I'll go to the Olympics since they've reopened that venue out there. It's an accounting term, and it means what when you when you hear the word reckon in terms of an in terms of accounting, what does that mean to you? Yeah, something is credited to our account. Uh, most of you have uh, perhaps have played Monopoly. You remember you draw that little card and it says, "Woo, bank error in your favor. Uh, collect two hundred dollars, or to collect fifteen dollars, or whatever it is." It's credited to your account. Well, how does God do that? How is it that he credits to our account? And we saw last week, and that's what we want to spend our time talking about this session, is that the way God does that is at the cross, God credited, credited it to our account. As the Lord Jesus hung on the cross, all of the sins of God's people that's an important point. All the sins of God's people were placed upon Christ. And what did God do? Then God poured out his wrath on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of the righteousness, all of the perfection that Christ himself is, righteousness, perfection, holiness, all that Christ is, is credited to the believer. Now, how can God do that? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today, because we're going to talk about we're going to talk about a very important word, and uh, it's fascinating that the word is does not even appear in the New International Version, which I think well that's another story, but we don't need to get into that. It's the word propitiation. Now that's one of those four dollar and a half theological words that you think I don't. There's no reason at all that I would ever need to know anything about what that means. But <clears throat> basically, the word propitiation means to avert, um, avert God's wrath. 
Now, one of the reasons that we don't hear much about this is because most of us don't like to think in terms particularly of God's wrath. We like to talk about God's love and God's grace and God's mercy. And clearly, all those things are, are very true. But in propitiation, we're talking about the averting God's wrath. God is, in his character, holy and righteous, altogether lovely, altogether good. And because he is these things, how does sin affect the character of a person who is fully holy and fully righteous? Yeah, it's a, it's a repulsion to him. And God, because he is holy and because he is righteous, has to deal with sin. If he didn't deal with sin, he'd cease to be God. He can't say, yeah, well, I'm going I'm to let Frank Duncan slide this time. Well, the minute God does that, he ceases to be holy because he's making exceptions. He's no longer demonstrating righteousness and holiness. God is wrathful against sin and rightly wrathful against sin. Propitiation is that doctrine in which we talk about averting God's wrath. Now, there are four New Testament passages where that term is used. And they're on the bottom of, your, uh, of that first page of your notes there. And I want us just to take the time to read those four passages because I think in reading them, it will help, help us to understand uh, this whole idea of how propitiation fits into how it is that God can justify us. How can God take wicked, evil sinners like us and declare us to be righteous? first one is from Romans 3, verses 21 through 28. It says now, but, and Paul writes, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Does that mean that everybody is an equal sinner? No, it doesn't mean that. There's some people who are worse sinners than others. It's just like, uh, let's see, we've got the Olympics going on now. And let's say we're going to have a new event this year, and the event is we're going to swim from Savannah to, uh, to Great Britain. How'd you like to enter that event? Now, there may be those among us in here who are really good swimmers, and we might be able to go three, four, five miles, maybe even further in spite of the chilly waters. There are others of us who maybe might get out just a few hundred yards and that would be the end of us. Some people would do better than others, but would anybody ever be able to swim from Savannah to Great Britain? And the answer is no. We all fall short. Some do better than others, but in the final analysis, everybody falls short. That's what he's talking about here. All fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Notice, whom God displayed publicly. And the, where, where do you suppose God did something publicly? That was at the cross. That was not done in a closet. It was done out in the open everywhere. God did this publicly. It says he displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And we'll read the rest of the verse in a few minutes because it pertains to something else. In Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things 
that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This verse answers the question, why did God see, feel it was necessary to take on human flesh? That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. The incarnation. Uh, incarnation. God taking on human flesh. Most of us uh, like to uh, eat chili, and we eat chili con carne. What is chili con carne? Con means with, and what is carne? We get our word carnal from it. What does it mean? It means flesh, meat. What is the incarnation? God took on flesh. God took on meat. God took on our physical characteristics. Why did God do that? Hebrews 2.17 tells us. Why did Jesus take on human flesh? in order that he might make propitiation for the sins of the people. John writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Two chapters later, John writes, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3? What did he say? There's none who seeks after God. There's none righteous. No, not one. He said, It's not because we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation has to do with the averting of God's anger, God's wrath. That is appeasing the wrath of deity. I think it's fascinating. Uh, incidentally, the NIV uses the word expiation. And there's a big difference. Uh, that's one of the reasons I prefer in my, in my study generally to use the New American Standard Version because it rightly translates that word propitiation. Expiation simply means to send away, uh, that God has sent away the penalty of my sin. Propitiation means that, but it means more than that. It means that God was rightly angry over my sin and God's wrath and anger that was aimed toward me, which was hovering over me, has been averted. And propitiation tells us why it was averted. Uh, and if you look at Greek mythology, and some of you may enjoy reading Roman and Greek mythology, there's a, in the story of the Trojan Wars, there's the story of Paris, who uh, a prince, prince named Paris, who abducted Helen and took Helen back to Troy. And there was uh, Helen's husband was obviously very upset over this, uh, this event. And so uh, his brother, uh, that would be Helen's brother-in-law, was a man named Agamemnon. So Agamemnon decided that he would go to rescue Helen from the Trojans. 
And as he set sail, they got to a certain point, and all of a sudden the winds became unfavorable. Either they were blowing contrary to the way they needed to go, or the winds just became still. And in order for to gain favorable winds, that was the days in which people believed in a multitude of gods. There were gods, who, gods of war. There were gods who controlled the winds. There were gods who controlled the seas. And Agamemnon came to the conclusion that what needed to be done was that the god of the winds needed to be appeased in some way. Apparently, the god of the wind was angry. That's the reason things weren't going the way that they should. So they needed, apparently, a virgin that they could sacrifice to this god. So Agamemnon sent for his own daughter under a different pretense and brought her and she was sacrificed to this god of, uh, of the wind, and the result was the wind began to blow favorably again. So that is the concept of propitiation. It finds, it has roots. You find it, you find it in ancient history, even in mythology. Uh, of course, in cases like that where we're talking about these mythological gods, we're talking about gods who were temperamental, who had ego problems, who were threatened by everything, and so there were people. So people, in order to stay in the good graces of their gods, were constantly having to do things to appease these gods, to avert their anger. And that's what we see in Greek and Roman mythology. In in the Bible, we see, this, we see the idea of propitiation as well, but in the Bible, we're not dealing with a capricious God. We're not dealing with a God who is vile, who's just having a bad day and says, if you don't offer up a sacrifice, I'm going to wipe you characters out. We see God who, is, who has every reason to be angry and wrathful because of the sin of all of the people in the world. Now, how is it that that sin is averted? And what we're going to see is that God does not expect us to offer up a sacrifice to appease his wrath, that God himself provided the sacrifice to appease his righteous indignation over our sinfulness. Some people look at this and they say, well, now I understand. What this means then is that God the Father was really ticked off. And so what God the Son did, he was kind of more of a loving kind of part of the Godhead. And so these two were sort of at odds each other in the Godhead. And finally, what Jesus did was, you know, he went to the cross and in doing that, he everything turned out okay. That's not true. Because there, there are never any disagreements or at odds within the context of the Godhead. Was God angry? Was God wrathful? Paul writes that in Romans chapter 1 that the wrath of God, and in chapter 2 of Romans, that the wrath of God is just resting on creation right now. It's like, it's like all that water building up behind the dam there out in the, uh, in the, in the west in Colorado. And one day somebody's going to come along and that 
dam's going to crack, and when it does, that water's just going to wipe out everything. God's wrath is described that way. But at the same time, God is loving. And because God is loving, and because God has set his heart on a particular people, and he intends, he's chosen them for himself, and he is going to bring them to himself, God has provided himself the sacrifice to avert his own wrath. And that's what we see in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice uh, under, I've got in your notes there, a description of propitiation. First of all, and this is a very important point, I've already mentioned it, and that is propitiation is the work of God himself. In other words, can you and I ever meet the standards that God requires? No. Only God himself can meet those standards. And God has met those standards by sending himself, by sending his son, the second person of the Godhead, taking on human flesh in order that he could deal with the sin problem of his people. And we see it in the, for example, we see it um, in the offering of Abraham's son Isaac. You remember uh, Ishmael had been rejected and uh, everything was kind of rocking along. Isaac had grown up by this time. He's probably around 15 to 17 years old. And one night in the middle of the night, God woke Abraham up and he said, Abraham, yeah, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, to a certain place. We know it was Mount Moriah. And offer him up as a sacrifice to me. And guess what Abraham did? He moved out. He was a man of faith. And notice in uh, verse 6 of this passage in Genesis 22, verse 6, as they're heading out their way, they get to Moriah, or at least to the foothills of Mount Moriah. He, Abraham, said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Whoa! Whoa, God had told him he was going to do what to his son? He was going to sacrifice his son. And yet, what is it that Abraham says right here? He says, we're going to worship, but then what? Yeah, he didn't say, I'm coming back. He said, we're coming back. And the writer of Hebrews comments on this and comments on the fact that that was Abraham's faith speaking because God had promised that Abraham's descendants we're going to be through Isaac. So if God was going to require this, then God was just going to have to raise that boy from the dead. Now, what happens? Well, we know he gets up there. Abraham stretches out the knife. He's ready to cut that boy's throat as a sacrifice. God stops him. Verse 12, don't lay a hand on the boy. He said, don't do anything to him now. I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by his horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Here we see the idea of substitution, representative substitution in the Scriptures. So Abraham, and notice what Abraham calls that place. This is delightful. 
Abraham called that place a phrase that you and I use from time to time. The Lord will provide. What had God done? He had provided what? He had provided the sacrifice himself. In this case, it was the ram who was caught there. We see it also in the incarnation of Christ, that passage out of Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son. That's God in human flesh, in human form. God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Remember the old hymn we sing at Christmas, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity, Hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn king. Propitiation is the work of God. Only God can provide the sacrifice that he requires. That's the reason in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9, after saying it's by grace you have been saved through faith, then it says what? Not of yourself. There's nothing we can do. That's the reason Augustus' top lady wrote in Rock of Ages. I think it's the third stanza. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Are our works important? Yes. After we are saved, our works are to bring glory to God, but they have nothing to do with our salvation. We see also propitiation in terms of it was made, uh, propitiation was made by the death of Christ. I think one of, the, one of the clearest typifications of that in the Old Testament, and I put it in your notes, we won't read it all, but it's the one from Leviticus 16, and it's the, it's the story of what happens on the day of Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. On that particular day, there were a number of offerings that were offered up, but finally there were two goats that were brought to the high priest, and they would cast lots, kind of like shooting dice, but they'd figure out one of these goats was going to be offered up as a sacrifice. That was the substitute. The other goat came to be known as the scapegoat. And the old Aaron, or later on after Aaron died, his successor would, would cut the throat of that animal, uh, that, that goat that was going to be sacrificed, and that blood, some of it would be collected, and it would be sprinkled on the mercy seat. What's the mercy seat? Anybody remember? Yeah, it was the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. It was called the mercy seat. The only place you could be under the mercy of God is if you are, as it were, in that Ark. And of course, what's in the Ark? The Ten Commandments. The Ark is, typifies the Lord Jesus Christ. The only place we're under the mercy of God is if we are in Christ Jesus himself. So the animal was killed. The blood was sprinkled on that mercy seat. Incidentally, the word mercy seat, uh, that term is used one time in the New Testament for the same word that's translated propitiation. The mercy seat was the way God's anger or God's wrath was averted from, uh, from his people. Okay, so that was done. So that leaves the scapegoat. What happened to the scapegoat? Notice, in, uh, again, in your notes from Leviticus chapter 16, verse 20, it says, When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, 
That's having sprinkled the blood of the other goat. Then he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. Now that what that is is to bring the goat up there. He's by the altar. He lays his hands on the goat and he begins to confess his sins and the sins of his people. And this is what's known as identification. In doing that, he's saying to God, God, what's about to happen to this goat really ought to be happening to me. This goat is taking my place. The same was true of the other goat. When that goat's uh, throat was cut, that's what should have happened to me, that God's anger should have been poured out on me. Instead, it's poured out on this substitute. In the case of the scapegoat, he confesses the sins of himself, the people, and what happens? He says, he shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. See, that's a dual representation on the, on the day of Yom Kippur. First of all, there's death that occurs. That's what sin deserves. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. That's what we deserve. But in this case, the goat, as it were, was a typical uh, representation of what Christ would do, that he would die for the sins of his people. But what about the other goat, the scapegoat? Sins were confessed on him. He was taken out into the desert, into a solitary place, turned loose, never to be seen again. That's a picture of what also what Christ did for us, that he was separated from the Father. Remember what Christ cried out from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in all of eternity, the Father and the Son had their backs to each other. They were separated. Why? Because of Jesus' sin? No. Because of my sin and your sin had been placed on him and God was pouring out his anger on his son because our sins had been placed on him. And then after having placed our sins on him, God poured out his wrath on his son. Notice what Jesus himself said about his own death there at the bottom of that second page. I'm the good shepherd, John, John 10. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Notice he didn't lay down his life for the goats. Lay down his life for the sheep. The writer of Hebrews gives us a commentary on the death of Christ. And I'd like for us to look at that for a minute in Hebrews chapter 10, those first 14 verses. And this is written approximately around A.D. 65 to 67. The temple was still standing. The, the, the crucifixion of Christ probably took place somewhere around 32 to 33 A.D., this is some 30 years uh, plus later where the, the Jewish religion is still going through the motion. They're still offering up their sacrifices. They're still going through all this stuff. And the writer of Hebrews com comments on that. Now we know that just about three to five years later, all that ended when Titus Vespasian came in 
the Roman conqueror and destroyed the temple and destroyed Jerusalem. But the writer of Hebrews says this, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and it would no long, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. What body? The body of the Son of God. He took on human flesh. He didn't come like an angel. He didn't come to die for angels. He didn't come like a dog. He didn't come to die for dogs or cats. He came in human flesh to die for particular humans, God's people. He goes on to say uh, at, uh, in verse 10, And by that will, that is the will of the Son and what he did going to the cross, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then there's a, just a marvelous contrast that's made here. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties Again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. They're going through all these motions, the writer says. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Notice the contrast. You've got the Levitical priests, and what are they doing? They're making sacrifices over and over and over. In fact, they are so busy making sacrifices that the writer says they're constantly standing. They were never through making sacrifices. But when the great high priest, the Lord Jesus, came in order to justify his people, he made how many sacrifices? One for all time from the time of Adam all the way forward to the time of Christ coming, it was sufficient for all of God's people during all of that time. One sacrifice for all. And then what did Jesus do? He sat down. Why would he sit? Because his work was finished. There was nothing else left to do. Propitiation manifest God's righteousness. The last part of that verse that I didn't read in Romans 3 a little earlier, uh, beginning about verse 24, 25, it says, this was to demonstrate what, what Christ did in dying, his propitiation, his turning away God's wrath. This was to demonstrate his, God's righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. See, what Paul is saying, he's saying people looked at God and he said, how can God be holy? How can God be righteous? Because if he's the God you say he is, he's not doing anything about sin. You've got all this stuff going on. It looks like God doesn't care. I mean, the last time God really did anything was in Noah's day. And God doesn't care at all right now. And he points to the cross and he says, for the demonstration I say of his, God's righteousness at the present time, that he, God the Father, might be just, might be seen to be righteous in what he's done, 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's fascinating that when Jesus was there on the cross, right before he died, he cried out, It is finished. That's one word in the original language. It is finished is the word to die. T-E-T-E-L-E-S-T-A-I. To die. Literally, it means it is completely complete. It's a word used by artisans when they had made a vase or they painted a picture. It's perfect. There's nothing you need to add to it. It was used by merchants when a sale had been made. The sale is done. There's nothing else to add to that. It was also used in terms of the judicial system. If a person was uh, charged with a crime, his crimes would be placed on a piece of parchment, just like what was written about Jesus and placed above his head. If he went, if the person who was charged of crimes was placed in a jail cell, that parchment with all the crimes of which he had been uh, found guilty would be fastened to that jail cell. And when his time was up, and the turnkey came and opened the cell door, and the prisoner came out having paid his debt to society, they would take that parchment that had all of his crimes written on it, and they would write one word across it, tetelestai. It's completely complete. This person has paid in full this crime. And they would roll that parchment up and hand it to the person as they walked away from the jail. When Christ died on the cross, he said it's complete completely complete not by works of righteousness which we have done Paul wrote but according to his mercy he saved us now what are the results of God's turning away his wrath God turned away his wrath by pouring out his wrath on his son the Lord Jesus Christ and he accounts or credits to us, those who believe in Christ, he credits to us all the righteousness, the holiness, the perfections of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he sees us, he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And what we see is one of the results, there are a number of results of justification, but one of them, and we want to talk about it just ever so briefly, is that of adoption. The word adoption means to place as an adult son. It was a term, it was only, it's interesting that in the New Testament it's a term that's only used by Paul and it was, uh, it was used very commonly in the Roman culture that when a man had, he may have had a whole house full of children, but it could be as he looked around at his kids, he just didn't want to see, he didn't see anybody there that he wanted to adopt so that they would bear his name and that they would receive his inheritance one day. And if he didn't see anybody among his own children, he might look out somewhere else and say, now there's a fine upstanding person. I'm going to get that person. I'm going to adopt him. He will bear my name and he also will receive all of my inheritance. That's the term that Paul picks up and says, one of the results of God's justifying us, one of the results of his acquitting us of our sins, see, see what happens. When God acquits us of our sins, we get, we get the idea of a courtroom here. God is the judge, and he's sitting behind the bench, 
and in he's in his long black robe, and we see we in our mind's eye we see this stern look, and we stand before the judge, and we plead, nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. And God slams down the gavel and he says, not guilty. God acquits us. God says, I credit to you the righteousness of Christ because you are trusting in him. Now, most of us would say, well, that's great. Now, I'll leave the courtroom. I've been acquitted. And the judge can go on back to his house and that's the end of it. In adoption, what happens is that the judge steps down from the bench and he takes off his robe and he comes around to me, the one just acquitted of my sin, and he puts his arm around me and he says, I want you to have my name. I want to give my inheritance to you. I want you to come home with me. It's the highest privilege that we can have as Christians is to be adopted into the family of God and after all what is God's intention and we saw it over here in predestination that we might be made what into the likeness of his son even in calling ourselves Christian we're taking on the title of our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ look if you will at just a couple of terms, a couple of places where the term is used in the New Testament, I put three in your notes, but notice there on that final page, uh, at the top of the page it says, He, God, predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one he loves. Every link in God's chain is unbreakable. Justification is that legal act of God in which he declares the believing sinner to be acquitted of his sins and he credits to their account Christ's own righteousness. The means of justification is faith in Christ alone. One of the results of justification is that of adoption. My judge has become my father and he seeks to give to me that, I bec uh, that is, I become a co-heir with Christ Jesus the Lord. The only appropriate response to that, I believe, is praise to God. And I put in your notes there and we'll end with this. This is from Augustus Toplady who wrote uh, Rock of Ages and this is from a hymn that we seldom ever hear, faith reviving. From whence this fear and unbelief hath not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which, Lord, was charged on thee? Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost farthing paid whate'er thy people owed. Nor can his wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood. If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand. You've been listening to Focus on Truth. 
the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.